Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Let's start off, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries. From the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, July 23, 2023, Carolee S. Goldberg, November 17, 1943 to July 12, 2023, author unknown. Beloved mother, grandmother, sister, and cousin and friend Carolee Goldberg died after an acute cardiovascular illness in Thousand Oaks, California on July 12, 2023 at the age of 79. Carolee was born in Los Angeles on November 17, 1943. Her adoring father, Robert Metzner, was a highly successful inventor, electrical engineer, businessman, and sculptor whose creativity she inherited as a musician and songwriter. He proudly produced her album of original self-performed music. Carolee attended UCLA as an undergraduate. She traveled widely and had many friends in the music world and beyond. Ann Kaufman deserves special mention as having been like a sister to her. Carolee worked at in the travel industry. Vibrant and talented was how another of her oldest friends described her. To her immediate family, she'll always be remembered as a supremely loving and devoted human being, not to mention a passionate L.A. Dodgers fan. In addition to her own, she provided generous uh, parenting to many foster care babies. Her compassion extended into the animal world. She started as a child with hamsters, during her adult life, she was dedicated to many dogs, cats, and horses. Her greatest love, however, was showered upon her five grandchildren, Jake, Kylie, Zach, Lexi, and Kinsley. The rest of her beloved family included her artistic daughter and the mother of her five grandchildren, Kate, Katie Hemphill, and her son-in-law, uh, Charles Hemphill of Fort Collins, Colorado. Her educator's son, Jamie Goldberg, also of Fort Collins, her proud brother, Dr. Richard Metzner, and sister-in-law, Dr. Judith Davenport of Encino, California. Her nephew, David Metzner, and his wife, Ariane Metzner, and their children, Noah and Maribel of Woodland Hills, California. Her nephew, Dr. Jeffrey Metzner, and his wife, Dr. Elise DiCarlo, and their children, Jacob, William, Nicholas, and Madison of Laywood, Kansas. And her separated husband, Edward Goldberg, CPA of Orange County, California. We will miss Carolee's ever-present sense of humor, her steadfast political involvement, her wide-ranging intellectual interests, and her encyclopedic knowledge of the entertainment world. A private family service will be held. We request that in lieu of flowers, contributions, and Carolee's memory be made to the animal welfare organization of your choice. There was Carolee S. Goldberg, November 17, 1943 to July 12, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary, obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. And from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 27th, 2023, Ruth J. Levine, April 21st, 1920 to July 25th, 2023, author unknown. A trailblazing, exceptional woman who was always ahead of her time. A lawyer, matriarch, a beloved member of the Los Angeles community, Ruth lived to, see, to the wonderful age of 103 while always maintaining her wit, charm, and sense of humor. Ruth immigrated to Los Angeles from Germany with her parents and sister 
having left in 1933 as the Nazis came to power. Ruth had been adamant, admitted to Oxford, and she initially cried when she realized she could not attend her dream school. Arriving in Los Angeles, she enrolled in USC and had so many credits she was able to finish her undergraduate education in two years. She then enrolled at USC Law School, not realizing that most women did not go to law school in those days. Her younger sister Laura followed her to law school. Ruth became a passionate, lifelong Trojan. At UCLA Law, Ruth met the love of her life, Dick Levine. <clears throat> they were an immediate couple. Dick graduated and joined the Army Air Corps to prepare for war. Dick proposed, and when he returned for a short leave on April, 20, uh, April 12, 1944, they celebrated a beautiful, quickly planned wedding. Ruth went to, uh, Dick went to war, and Ruth stayed home and was able to practice law, which was not easy for women at the time. Dick came home in 1946, and Kathy was born the next year, followed by Raymond in 1949. In 1952, the family relocated to Germany as Dick was recalled into the service during the Korean War. Returning to Los Angeles in 1954, Ruth stayed home with her children during the form their formative years and, they went back to and then went back to practicing law full-time. Although she was a busy practicing lawyer, she never missed a Girl Scout or Cub Scout meeting. She and Dick had a full life practicing law separately and then together. They had an immense passion for travel, exploring exotic places that most would only dream of. Dick went to D.C. in the 70s to work in the government, and Ruth commuted back and forth. They had a full social life in both places. Ruth was very involved with women lawyers, L.A. County Bar, and the L.A. County Bar Foundation. She was on the board of Jewish Family Services for many years. She also supported countless organizations near and far. Her philanthropic efforts for USC Law School were legendary. She was so proud of her scholarship students at USC Law School and met with them as recently as this past May. After Dick died in 1994, Ruth's years were filled with children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. She traveled, went to board meetings, and loved going to grandparents' days at her great-grandchildren's schools. She would lecture the headmaster about extending the title of the day to Great-Grandparents' Day. She is survived by her children, Kathy, Len, Raymond, Barbara, grandchildren, Laura, Randy, Dan, Mara, Amanda, uh, great-grandchildren, Jack, Emma, Nate, Dylan, Henry, Luca. Donations can be directed to Jewish Family Services of Los Angeles or the charity of your choice. The funeral service will be held on Friday, July 28th at noon at Hillside Memorial Park, 6001 West Sentinel Avenue, Los Angeles, 90045. That was Ruth J. Levine, April 21st, 1920 to July 25th, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 27th, 2023. Okay, let's go to some of the Israel stories here. Starting with this one from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 23rd, 2023, mass protest against Israeli judicial changes. Tens of thousands marched into Jerusalem in last-ditch bid to block Netanyahu's contentious proposal by Julia Frankel. Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of protesters marched into Jerusalem on Saturday evening, and hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets in Tel Aviv and other cities in a last-ditch show of force aimed at blocking Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul. Also, on, also Saturday, 
More than a hundred of Israel's former security chiefs signed a letter pleading with the Israeli Prime Minister to halt the legislation, and thousands of additional military reservists said they would no longer report for duty in a protest against the plan. In scorching heat, the procession into Jerusalem turned uh, the city's main entrance into a sea of blue and white Israeli flags as marchers complete, complete, completed the last leg of a four-day, 45-mile trek from Tel Aviv to Israel's parliament. The marchers, who grew from hundreds of, uh, to thousands as the march progressed, were welcomed in Jerusalem by throngs of cheering protesters before they set up camp in rows of small white tents outside the Knesset or parliament before Monday's expected vote. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands flooded the streets of the coastal city of Tel Aviv, the country's busiest, the country's business and cultural capital, as well as in Beersheba, Haifa, and Netanya. Hours later, the prime minister's office said Netanyahu was undergoing a procedure to remove, uh, to receive a pacemaker. In a short statement, Netanyahu's office said Israel's leader would be placed under sedation. A top deputy, Justice Minister Yariv Levin, was to stand in for him. Levin is the mastermind of the overhaul plan. The procedure comes one week after Netanyahu was hospitalized for what his office described as dehydration. Netanyahu's office said he would receive the pacemaker at Israel's Sheba Hospital, where he was treated July, uh, July 15 as well. He gave few other details, but quoted Netanyahu as saying the efforts to reach a wide agreement are continuing. In a brief videotaped statement, Netanyahu said he had been fitted with a monitoring device during the, ho the hospitalization last week. He said an alarm on the device uh, beeped Saturday night, night, meaning he needed a pacemaker immediately. I feel excellent, but I listened to my doctors, he said. Netanyahu and his far-right allies claim the judicial overhaul is needed to curb what they say are the excessive powers of unelected judges. But the critics say the plan will destroy the country's system of checks and balances and put it on the path toward authoritarian rule. President Biden has urged Netanyahu to halt the plan and seek a broad consensus. The proposed overhaul has drawn harsh criticism from business and medical leaders, and a fast-rising number of military reservists in key units have said they will st uh, stop reporting for duty if the plan passes, raising concern that the country's security interests could be threatened. More than 100 top former security chiefs, including retired military commanders, police commissioners, and heads of intelligence agencies, joined those calls Saturday night, signing, signing a letter to Netanyahu accusing him of compromising Israel's military and urging him to halt the legislation. The signatories include Ehud Barak, a former prime minister, and Moshe Yalon, a former army chief and defense minister. Both are political rivals of Netanyahu. The legislation is crushing those things shared by Israeli society, is tearing the people apart, disintegrating the IDF, and inflicting fatal blows on Israel's security, they wrote. The legislative process violates the social contract that has existed for 75 years between the Israeli government and thousands of reserve officers and soldiers from the land, air, sea, air, sea and intelligence branches who have volunteered for many years for the reserves to defend the democratic state of Israel. And now announce with a broken heart that they are suspending their volunteer service, the letter said. Israel Katz, a senior cabinet minister from Netanyahu's Likud party, said the bill would pass one way or another Monday. 
protesters see the overhaul <clears throat> as a power grab fueled by various personal and political grievances by Netanyahu, who was on trial for on corruption charges, and his partner as partners who want to deepen Israel's control of the occupied West Bank and perpetuate controversial draft exemptions for ultra-Orthodox men. That was mass protest against Israeli judicial changes by Julia Franco from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 23, 2023. Franco writes for the Associated Press. All right, here's another one from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 24, 2023. Netanyahu has medical emergency on eve of key vote by Tia Goldenberg. Tel Aviv. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was recovering in a hospital Sunday after an emergency heart procedure while opposition to his government's contentious judicial overhaul plan reached a fever pitch and unrest gripped the country. Netanyahu's doctor said Sunday that the heart pacemaker implantation went smoothly and that Netanyahu 73 felt fine. According to his office, he was expected to be discharged later in the day, but tensions were surging as lawmakers began a marathon debate over the first major piece of the overhaul ahead of a vote in Parliament enshrining it into law Monday. Mass protests continued part of seven straight months of the most sustained and intense demonstrations the country has ever seen. Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets across Israel on Saturday night while thousands marched into Jerusalem and camped out near the Knesset or Parliament ahead of Monday's vote. Netanyahu's sudden hospitalization added another dizzying twist to an already drama dramatic series of events that are certain to shape Israel's future. It comes as Israel's longest-serving leader faces the worst domestic crisis of his tenure, which has shaken the economy, caused cracks in the country's military, and tested the delicate social fabric that holds the polarized country together. Lawmakers began their debate despite his hospitalization. In a fiery speech launching uh, the session, Simchal Rothman, the main driver of the overhaul, denounced the courts, saying they damaged Israel's democratic fundamentals by arbitrarily striking down government decisions. This small clause is meant to restore democracy to the state of Israel, Rothman said. I call on Knesset members to approve the bill. Still, Netanyahu's health woes disrupted his routine. The weekly cabinet meeting scheduled for Sunday morning was postponed. Two upcoming overseas trips to Cyprus and Turkey were being rescheduled, his office said. Netanyahu's office said that he was sedated during the implantation and that uh, a top deputy, Justice uh, Minister Yariv Levin, stood in for him while he underwent the procedure. Levin, a confidant of the prime minister, is the mastermind of the overhaul. In a video from his hospital room Sunday afternoon, Netanyahu, wearing a white dress shirt, and Dark Blazer said he felt fine. He said he was pushing forward with the legislation, but also pursuing a compromise with his opponents. In any case, I want you to know that tomorrow morning I'm joining my colleagues at the Knesset, he said, without saying when he would be released. Israeli media and last-ditch efforts were underway uh, to find a solution out of the impasse, but it wasn't clear whether those would bear fruit. Legislators are set to vote on an overhaul measure that would limit the Supreme Court's oversight powers by preventing judges from striking down government decisions on the basis that they are unreasonable. Monday's vote would mark the first major piece of legislation to be approved. 
Proponents say the current reasonability standard gives judges an ex excessive powers over decision-making by elected officials. Critics say removing the standard, which is invoked infrequently, would allow the government to approve arbitrary decisions, make improper appointments or, fire, uh, or firings, and open the door to corruption. The overhaul also calls for other sweeping changes aimed at curbing the powers of the judiciary, including limiting the Supreme Court's ability to challenge parliamentary decisions and changing the way judges are selected. Speaking in Parliament, oppos opposition leader Yair Lapid called for Netanyahu to resume compromise talks and lauded the protesters for standing up to the government. The government of Israel launched a war of attrition against its citizen, the citizens of Israel and discovered that people can't be broken. We won't give up on our children's future, he said. Protesters who come from a wide swath of Israeli society see the overhaul as a power grab fueled by personal and political grievances of Netanyahu, who is on trial for corruption charges, and his partners who want to deepen Israel's control of the occupied West Bank and perpetuate con controversial draft exemptions for ultra-Orthodox men. Netanyahu was rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night a week after being hospitalized for what doctors said was dehydration. They released him then after implanting a device to monitor his heart, but he was hospitalized again Sunday because it showed an anom anomalies prompting the need for a pacemaker. That was Netanyahu has medical emergency on eve of key vote by Tia Goldenberg from the Perspectives, the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 24th, 2023. Goldenberg writes for the Associated Press. And here is another article from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 25th, 2023. Passage of law seen as blow to Israel's democracy. Right-wing Netanyahu government pushes through restrictions on judiciary despite objections by the U.S. By Tracy Wilkinson, Laura King, and Mel Melanie Lidman. Washington. In a speech to a joint session of the U.S. Congress last week, Israeli President Isaac Herzog invoked the word democracy on a variation or a variation thereof at least 17 times in praise of his country's political system. U.S. lawmakers jumped to their feet in steady applause nearly every time. But at home, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are now living in deep fear that Israel, long heralded as the only democracy in the Middle East, will no longer be able to claim the title. We're totally shocked. This is horrible, said Naomi Sussman, 59, a translator who was in the crowd of protesters outside the Israeli parliament in Jerusalem on Monday, hours after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing government pushed through a law that op opponents believe will gut the power of Israel's judiciary and destroy a central pillar of its democracy. President Biden and other U.S. leaders have voiced objections to the law and urged the Israeli government to seek consensus as massive demonstrations continue to fill Israeli streets week after week. Though Washington gave, uh, gives Israel billions of dollars for security each year, that aid is considered a sacrosanct, giving U.S. officials little leverage. They acknowledge that the issue was ultimately a domestic Israeli matter. Netanyahu owes his uh, seat and power to a coalition of ultra-nationalists Law, uh, not lawmakers, and he's essentially captive to them. Biden has expressed loyalty and admiration for Israel for both political and personal reasons, but he also wants it to preserve the democratic ideals that are the reason for much of the support it enjoys. 
It is unfortunate that the vote today took place with the slimmest possible majority, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Monday. As a form of pressure, Biden has broken with tradition and refused to issue a formal invitation to Netanyahu to visit the White House after the Israeli leader's re-election last year. Monday's White House statement made no mention of Netanyahu, instead expressing support for Herzog in the ceremonial role for president and Israeli officials seeking compromise. The law which limits the ability of the Supreme Court to overturn government uh, decisions has thrown Israel into unprecedented political crisis, so turmoil in its military, which generally opposes the legislation, and smirched the nation's reputation abroad. Proponents of the legislation are motivated by deep-seated resentment toward what they see as a liberal court. These include Jewish settlers who insist on building on, a wet, on West Bank lands claimed by Palestinians and the ultra-religious Haredim who are worried about the court decisions that threaten to cut their benefits, including heavy subsidies, and a pass to avoid military service. Some critics say Netanyahu, who was on trial on corruption charges, believes weakening the judiciary helps his case. The Biden administration comes up against the hard calculus of the coalition, which sees the, this move as crucial for amplifying its power, said David Makovsky, a former editor of the Jerusalem Post and a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I don't think any U.S. president could have stopped it. That's despite the fact, Makovsky said, that Biden has the support of the majority of the Israeli public. I've never seen a U.S. president withhold a White House invitation for seven months and have the Israeli public on his side, Makovsky said. It defies political physics. Netanyahu's decision to ignore Biden could have other ramifications, such as chilling U.S. efforts to broker an Israeli-Saudi diplomatic breakthrough. Israel has always uh, considered itself a liberal democracy, which is an important distinguishing factor between it and its neighbors, said Yuval Shani, a Hebrew University law professor and senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. The fact that they're willing to go to such an extent to basically jeopardize the military, the economy, society, and also create a, a rupture with the international communities, and specifically with Washington, this is quite remarkable and is extreme in and of itself. The characterization of Israel as a democracy has always rung hollow for the Palestinians living under Israeli military occupation for nearly half a century, a group that now numbers 5 million. The political picture in Israel now is also bad news for them. Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip have long sought an independent state and the Supreme Court served as a last resort for some seeking to prevent their property from being seized by Israelis. There was widespread expectation that the already numerous settlements, which much of the world considers illegal, will now expand even as deadly violence between the Israelis and Palestinians has soared in recent months. In a brief televised address, after the vote by the Knesset or Parliament, Netanyahu sought to portray his action as realizing the will of the voter, the essence of democracy. The vote came against an extraordinary backdrop. Tens of thousands of Israeli protesters in the streets of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and other cities defying water cannon blasts and horse-backed mounted police officers, while some raising fierce cries of shame. As mass protests entered a 29th week, 
demonstrators lay on the ground to block traffic, formed a human chain stretched from the Western Wall to downtown Jerusalem, and erected a sprawling tent uh, city near the Knesset. Authorities took the virtually unprecedented step of deploying skunk water, a foul-smelling liquid sometimes sprayed at Palestinian protesters in the occupied West Bank uh, against some of the Israeli demonstrators. By evening, the unrest spread into the heart of Tel Aviv, the country's commercial capital. All our fears became real today, said Rivka Calderon, a retired museum archivist from Tel Aviv who was protesting in downtown Tel Aviv on Monday night. Today was not an easy protest, but I'm looking for that feeling of being together. That's why I came back out tonight. Calderon said she was also worried about the damage done to the wider society evidenced by violence between the two sides on Monday night, including a car-ramming attack that left three anti-reform protesters in injured and shots fired in the air at a protest in southern Israel. There's a tear that is so deep in our society, and that's not healthy. This enormous gap between the two sides is that is getting deeper, she said. The uh, thousands of Israeli military-aged men have said they would not report for reserve duty if the legislation moved ahead, including hundreds of Air Force reservists who threatened to withhold their participation in mandatory weekly readiness exercises. I can't even say these words out loud that we're not a democratic country, said Eyal Yafe, the, le uh, the leader of a group of veterans of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. The group created a life-sized version of the tank Yafi fought in 50 years ago and has been taking it to protests all over the country. He was in the reserves until leaving the army altogether to join the protests. I never thought that in my life I'd leave the army under my own decision when I still have things to do there, he said. I love the army and I love to serve the country, but I can't continue serving a country that's going to be a dictatorship. Israel's largest labor federation, the Histadrut, said it would consider holding a general strike and the unrest shuttered hundreds of shops and businesses, even entire large shopping malls. As Netanyahu's political allies posed for triumphant selfies in the Knesset, commentators warned of a staggering and perhaps irreparable blow to the country's democratic traditions. Veteran editor and commentator David Horowitz writing for the Times of Israel website, said Netanyahu and his government had set in motion a process that risks tearing apart the state of Israel. Speaking to Britain's Channel 4, former Prime Minister Ehud Omar said, we are going into a civil war now. Adding to the sense of crisis and drama, the 73-year-old Netanyahu pushed through the legislation even while recovering from the implanting of a pacemaker over the weekend. And what Netanyahu's critics saw as an ominous portent, the hardline national security minister Itamar Ben-Givur said Monday's legislation, legislative action was only the beginning. There are many more laws we need to pass as part of the judicial overhaul, he declared. That was Passage of Laws Seen as Blow to Israel's Democracy by Tracy Wilkinson, Laura King, and Melanie Lidman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 25th, 2023. Time staff writers Wilkinson and King reported from Washington and special correspondent Lidman from Tel Aviv. Staff writer Owen Tucker-Smith in Washington contributed to this report. 
And now we've got an opinion article uh, from the same Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, from the opinion section. A perilous moment for Israel's democracy. The right wing's efforts to consolidate power is dangerous and it won't stop. By David N. Myers. Many Israelis, particularly among the Jewish majority, feel a sense of apocalyptic doom today. It is not only a few days before Tisha B'Av, the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, commemorating the destruction of the two holy temples in Jerusalem, it is also a time of immense political uncertainty in Israel. The passage of the bill in the Knesset on Monday that prohibits the use of the standard of extreme unreasonableness in assessing government decisions is but the first of a series of proposed legislative acts that would strip away any meaningful form of judicial review. The effect, and for some politicians' real intent, is to liberate the extreme right-wing government that has gained control of the legislative and executive branches in Israel from any constraint that the judiciary might seek to exercise. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition has already caused grievous damage to Israel's democratic institutions. In response, Israelis have taken to the streets to protest for an unprecedented 29 consecutive weeks under the slogan, Dem-O-Krat-Yah. At the same time, foreign investors, high-tech executives, and in recent days, leading corporations and banks have joined the protest movement. Labeling the government's actions as dangerous to the well-being of the Israeli pol- uh, polity and economy. Most critically, thousands of reserve soldiers, including more than a thousand reserve Air Force personnel, who are among the most prestigious of Israeli military personnel, have indi- indicated they, that they will refuse to show up for duty if the government continues with its proposals. Never in the history of the state of Israel has there been an internal a protest of this scale or duration, nor has there ever been such a law, such a grave threat to the rule of law. And yet, it is also the case that there has never been as serious an opportunity to confront the deep structures of Israel's democracy crisis. This requires accepting a version of Vladimir Lenin's infamous adage, the worse the better. Had Netanyahu pulled back at the last moment and put a pause on his government's attempt uh, attempted judicial revolution and might well have served to dissipate the remarkable people power that has appended business as usual in Israel. The passage of the judicial law on Monday can give new energy to the protest movement and make clear that Netanyahu is fully prepared to disable democratic institutions in his country if only to preserve his coalition and, above all, his own political life. Of course, democracy the democracy crisis did not begin in November, when Netanyahu was elected yet again after having been replaced as prime minister in the previous government. In fact, he had already begun to undermine democracy when he served as prime minister from 2009 to 2020. During that long decade, he took aim at human rights groups, political opponents, artists, and writers through a series of legislative and executive acts as well as 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 through his formidable social media machine. He agitated for and celebrated the enshrinement of the principle of Jewish supremacy in the nation-state law of 2018, a quasi-constitutional basic law that asserted the paramount rights of Jews without mentioning democracy or equality for others. And in truth, the roots of the democracy crisis extend even further back to 1948, to the establishment of the state. Israel's founding declaration of independence does not mention the word democracy. 
To be sure, the new state imported and implemented democrat democratic principles and practices from different sources. But from that time, there was a lack of clarity about how Israel could be both a Jewish state and one that adhered to the values of democracy, including a system of checks and balances among government authorities, an ironclad commitment for the rule of law, rights for minorities, and equality for all citizens. The Declaration of Independence exemplifies the tension uh, by narrating at great length the story of the Jewish people's triumphant return to their homeland, while including a single paragraph that speaks of equal rights for all citizens. Netanyahu has pushed the pendulum on the side of an ethnocratic Jewish state, leaving behind any real fealty to democracy. As such, he has opened the gates to a powerful movement of protest, one that operates in the spirit of peaceful, civil disobedience. This movement, in the last several months, can become a force of genuine change for years to come by demanding the re restoration of the rule of law in Israel and the removal from office of Netanyahu, who is currently being tried on bribery and fraud charges. But, it should not rest con uh, content in these actions. It should push further by demanding that Israeli democracy be rooted in the principle of equality for all, no better than by passing a new basic law on equality. Such a law can provide a foundation of which all who dwell in Israel, Jew and Arab alike, can claim to live in a democracy that rests on mutual respect rather than bitter hatred, constant strife and ethnic supremacy. That was a perilous moment for Israel's democracy by David N. Myers from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 25, 2023. David N. Myers teaches Jewish history at UCLA, where he serves as director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy and the Initiative to Study Hate. All right, and this next one from the world section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. Judicial overhaul leaves Israel's economy reeling. The value of the shekel and stock market fall. The tech sector is leading the way in the decline by Melanie Lidman and Tracy Wilkinson. Tel Aviv. Full-page ads in solid black covered the fronts of Israel's major newspapers Tuesday. Doctors walked out on strike, and the Israeli currency and stock market sank as the country braced for a dangerous economic fallout from the government's efforts to weaken courts. Political turmoil that sent tens of thousands of protesters into the streets for the last six months is also pulling down Israel's economy, investors and experts said Tuesday. A law passed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right coalition government stripping power from the Supreme Court brought warnings from critics about a slide in autocracy and from the international credit agencies and the country's high-tech industry about Israel's economic future. Since the judicial reform crisis began six months ago, the value of the shekel, the Israeli currency, has fallen to a three-year low and the stock market has fallen by 10% according to Reuters. In the last 48 hours, the TA35 index, the top 35 companies with the highest market value on the Tel Aviv stock exchange, dropped 4%. The last few months have literally broken the spirit of a lot of people who now don't believe in their uh, their future is in Israel, said Einat Guez, co-founder of an international payroll company called Papaya Global and a leader in the Demo Democratic movement. The government said the government is, is sending a clear message. You're not welcome here. 
We don't care about your future. The law passed Monday, the first of three proposed judicial overhauls, strips the Supreme Court's ability to nullify government decisions it finds unreasonable in the extreme. Opponents believe it will gut Israel's judiciary and destroy a central pillar of its democracy. Supporters want to limit the power of liberal judges to overturn laws created by an increasingly extremist and ultra-nationalist legislature. The efforts by Netanyahu, who was on trial on corruption charges, brought a rebuke from Israel's most loyal ally, the United States, where President Biden and major U.S. Jewish organizations urged the Prime Minister to reconsider the law and seek more consensus. Netanyahu ignored those entreaties, although the Israeli Knesset or Parliament is entering a long recess and won't be able to take further action until October. The Knesset moves also threaten to, to jeopardize Israel's attempts at rapprochement with Arab nations, especially Saudi Arabia, and further erode chances of peace with the Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. The reverberations prompted a warning Tuesday from the credit agency Moody's about a significant risk likely to cause negative consequences for Israel's economy and security situation. Morgan Stanley also predicted increased uncertainty about the economic outlook, although neither agency downgraded Israel's credit rating, which helps guide international investments. Netanyahu and Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich dismissed the economic concerns raised by Moody and others. This is a temporary response, and when the dust settles, it will be clear that Israel's economy is very strong, they said in a joint statement Tuesday. Especially hard-hit, analysts warn, is the high-tech industry, a roaring engine of Israel's modern economy. The newsstands awash in bl- and black Tuesday morning were the work of the Democratech movement, a coalition of high-tech workers opposed to the judicial overhaul. It paid for ads with the words, A Dark Day for Israel's Democracy, in five of the country's largest papers, including the pro-Netanyahu uh, Israel Hayom. This is killing the high-tech scene in Israel, and tech investor, said tech investor Yitzhak Fried, who has attended the chanting, flag-waving demonstrations weekly. Money is like water. It flows where it's easy, and it's about to stop coming here. The tech sector has been leading the way in Israel's economic decline as more workers and companies relocate. Although the country is not yet in recession and unemployment has not soared, said Yanai Spitzer, Associate Hebrew, uh, Professor of Economics at Hebrew University. Almost 70% of local Israeli startup companies have taken legal or financial steps toward relocation, including withdrawing cash reserves, uh, moving headquarters outside Israel, and relocating employees or conducting layoffs, according to a report this week from Startup Nation Central, an independent nonprofit focusing on the tech sector. It took years to build a high-tech sector in Israel, and high-tech has two fundamental pillars, said Spitzer. One is the institutional makeup, uh, that it's uh, sound to make business here and safe to invest in Israel, and the other is the human capital, and the judicial overhaul is about to destroy both of them. The high-tech sector has been an influential part of the protest movement over the last six months, including joining uh, general strikes on several occasions. In March, widespread strikes from the tech sector, the country's largest labor unions, and airport workers forced Netanyahu to temporarily shove the judicial overhaul for a number of months. 
Spitzer estimates that the economy has lost an estimated $81 billion, or 15% of the country's GDP, because of the judicial reforms and the impact of the economy. Israel's stock exchange had been a close mirror of the S&P 500 index. But in the last year, the Tel Aviv stock exchange has dropped 26.5% lower than the S&P. For the masses of demonstrators who formed an opposition movement unprecedented in Israel's 75-year history, there was a sense of defeat and dismay after Monday's vote. Many were returning home Tuesday, and streets here and in Jerusalem were largely back to normal. Still, leaders of the movement, which grew to encompass mostly secular students, progressive academics, business entrepreneurs, and the elite of Israel's security establishment, vowed to not surrender. Netanyahu's allies have said that the law passed Monday is only the beginning. They plan to exert cabinet control over judicial appointees and take steps to ensure legal advisors throughout the government are partisan loyalists. Without the protest movement, writer Noah Landau said, all state systems would have long since been completely recruited in service of a prime minister who is on trial for corruption and his ultranationalist and theocratic cronies. The greatest struggle is still ahead, Landau, an, ed an editor at the liberal Haaretz newspaper, wrote Tuesday. The appetite of the victory drunk coalition will only increase in the Knesset's fall session. The civil protest is therefore more important than ever. Critics of the judicial overhaul have begun to fill pet uh, file petitions challenging it at the Supreme Court. But since the law specifically targets the Supreme Court, it is unclear how these challenges would play out setting Israel on an uncharted institutional clash. And many in Israel worry that the instability at home weakens their country in the face of its enemies, such as Iran, raising arms over security. That was Judicial Overhaul Leaves Israel's Economy Reeling by Melanie Lidman and Tracy Wilkinson from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. Special Correspondent Lidman reported from Tel Aviv and Time Staff writer Wilkinson from Washington. All right, let's move on to something else now. This is from the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, July 27th, 2023. This space artist has long had stars in his eyes. The far-flung work of John Lumberg attempts to visualize celestial wonders we cannot truly see or imagine. By Corinne Pertel. John Lumberg's most far-flung work of art is currently more than 14.8 billion miles away in the cold no-man's land between the sun and its closest stars. The piece of, is a metallic album cover affixed to the surface of the Voyager 1 spacecraft. Inside is the golden record, a calling card from humanity designed to introduce alien beings to the sounds and images of Earth. Lombard's pictorial instructions for playing the record are engraved on the cover, which travels another 912,000 miles away from us every day. Erosion in space occurs slowly, so the pictures should be readable for at least the next billion years. Long after less Homer sapiens has perished, Lomberg's drawings may provide the universe's most compelling clue that our colorful, complicated species was ever here. For the last half century, Lomberg has been at the center of efforts to help inhabitants of this humble planet to understand their place in the universe. The process has taken him on a journey as well, one that can't compare with Voyager 
in distance, but that has revealed truths no less sublime than the images the craft has captured. Let's retrace Voyager 1's path from Earth, past the orbit of Saturn, where its trajectory diverged from uh, the, that of Voyager 2 and its identical copy of the Golden Record. Cross the orbit of 6446 Lombard, the asteroid named in, his, in honor of his contributions to science and, and sail by Mars, where the Spirit, Opportunity, and Curiosity rovers bear sundials he helped design. Over the familiar blue dot of our planet, zoom in on a tiny spot in the Pacific, the big island of Hawaii where Lombard 74 is on the patio of his family home examining drafts of his latest project, an illustrated biography of the universe. The challenge of the Big Bang is that there's no place standing outside uh, it that if you can look in it, he said, if you look at it, he said. Pulling up an illustration on his laptop of bright white shoots of energy emerging from a shapeless shadow, you sort of have to be in the middle of it. Encyclopedia Cosmologica is merely the latest in a lifetime of work that attempts to visualize what we can't truly see and to communicate with creatures we can't yet imagine. Each two-page spread covers a hundred million years. Our solar system doesn't show up until halfway through. Ever, everything since T-Rex's fits on the, on the final page. To appreciate the book will require readers to accept themselves as a small part of a giant cosmic production, one in which every star and proton counts. It's a point of view Lombard has spent a lifetime realizing through art. If you can imagine the swirling spiral of the Milky Way galaxy, you are almost certainly picturing a version of Lombard's vision of our celestial neighborhood. No photograph exists of the Milky Way as a whole. Were it possible to bend the laws of physics uh, to send a, ca a camera into space at the speed of light, that camera would take 26,000 years to reach the galaxy's outer edges. The Milky Way galaxy is notoriously difficult to know what it looks like because we're stuck in it. It's sort of like asking you to draw a detailed picture of your eyes if mirrors and reflections didn't exist, said Ethan Siegel, a theoretical astrophysicist who was working with Lombard on Encyclopedia Cosmologica. In 1991, the Smithsonian Institute commissioned Lombard to paint a portrait of the Milky Way for an exhibition at the National Air and Space Museum. He researched the subject for more than a year before picking up a brush. He built a digital map of all the known objects in the galaxy and experimented with different vantage points uh, before setting on the most dramatic view. Using the computer model as a guide, he plotted the celestial objects onto his canvas and then spent another year painting. The 6 by 8 foot result was, at the time, the most scientifically accurate image of the galaxy. He has since issued an updated version that includes discoveries made since the original, such as ex uh, exoplanets and the Sagittarius dwarf elliptical galaxy, which intersects the Milky Way. It's not the only time Lombard's work has crossed up into popular culture. He painted the cover illustration of Carl Sagan's 1985 novel Contact and designed the opening sequence for its 1997 film adaptation. Lombard won an Emmy Award for his work on Cosmos, a 13-part documentary series hosted by Sagan on public television in 1980. The Emmy sits on a table 
in Lombard's home outside the town of Captain Cook. So tarnished it, uh, so tarnished it looks like as if it was fish from a sea. This is what the tropics does to a statuette, he said with a chuckle. Lombard's art has inspired a generation of space enthusiasts. It was his illustrated version of the cosmos that came to mind when Siegel hit Encyclopedia Cosmotologica collaborator and imagined the planets and stars as a child. He helped shape my views of how I pictured the universe before we had Hubble images and James Webb Space Telescope images and all of these actual images of what the universe looked like, Siegel said. All visual art is a way of communicating across time. Lomberg has taken that to an extreme. He was tapped to lead the creation of a time capsule for future visitors to Mars. It's there now on the husk of the Phoenix uh, lander near the planet's North Pole. He was part of the, of the team that drafted warning signs for the U.S. Department of Energy's Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, a nuclear waste storage facility that will remain radioactive for at least not 10,000 years, longer than any human language or symbol has endured. And of course, there's the Golden Record, the most famous offering humanity has yet sent into the cosmos, purity, uh, purity in hopes that something or someone will find it. When designing for a different time or species, Lombard structures the work around principles most likely to be universally shared. Scientists assume that mathematical relationships and the fundamental laws of physics apply everywhere in the universe, and Lombard looks for the artistic equivalent of these universal truths. For example, every culture on our planet creates music and language through endless variations of a few simple building blocks and rules. Lombard believes that this instinct to play with uh, patterns could be common to all intellectual beings. The Golden Record contains Earth's greatest audio hits, laughter, birdsong, a kiss, as well as images uh, encoded into staticky sounds waveform data. Lombard helped choose these selections, lobbying for works with discernible structures, the systole-diastole of a human heartbeat, the crystalline architecture of Bach's third partita for unaccompanied violin. Lombard doesn't expect aliens to identify the images or sounds or to share his emotional reaction to Mozart's Queen of the Night, uh, Aria, his favorite track on the record. But he does believe they will recognize that these aren't random shapes and sounds. He expects that they will realize this is a message consciously chosen for them by another form of intelligent life. Lombard grew up in Philadelphia, the only child of a single mother. He loved drawing in space, specifically the idea that other kinds of life lay somewhere in its imme immensity. Upon receiving a childhood gift of an encyclopedia, he flipped through the pages looking for the non-existent section about life on other planets. I was always interested in it, he said. For me, the question wasn't always, why it isn't everybody else? He graduated from Trinity College with a degree in English in 1969, then performed alternative service as a psychiatric at a psychiatric hospital in Boston as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. During the day, he cleaned wards and tended to patients. After work, he painted and read about the stars. He moved to Toronto once uh, his commitment was up, having fallen for the city on his first visit. 
15 years later, he moved to Hawaii for the same reason. Meanwhile, NASA was preparing to launch its first missions to Jupiter and Saturn in 1972 and 73. Pioneer 10, after Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11 visited the gas giants, they would become some of the first human-made objects to leave the solar system. With the Pioneer project, Sagan spotted the opportunity, an opportunity. The Cornell University professor spearheaded an effort to create plaques engraved with a simple map of Earth's location with a galaxy and the figures of a man and a woman. The identical plaques on the sister spacecraft were the first things humans sent into space for the inhabitants of a different civilization. The idea electrified Lombard. He wrote Sagan a fan letter and enclosed some photographs of his paintings. To his surprise, Sagan replied that he would be passing through Toronto on an upcoming trip. Could they meet? The two spent Sagan's layover discussing science fiction, art, and astronomy. By the time he left to catch his connecting flight, Sagan had offered Lombard a job illustrating his forthcoming science book, which would eventually be published as The Cosmic Connection. Their creative partnership would last until Sagan's death in 1996 from bone marrow disease. The two men met at a time of great optimism about the world technology would build. It's very hard to recapture what the future seems like in those days, Lombard said. The universe seems like a welcoming place. That optimism faded in the 21st century. Depictions of the future grew grim. All zombies and apocalypses in fiction, violence and climate catastrophe in the news. We're so wary of one another that even the stars seem suspect, he said. A lot of people say, well, aren't you afraid that sending messages out there is going to invite somebody to come and destroy us? I think we're just protecting our own fears about ourselves, he said. People are just much more fearful that of the cosmos than we were back then. Paleku Gardens Peace Sanctuary is a botanic garden overlooking the sea captain Cook, the sea in Captain Cook, not far from the home where Lombard and his wife Sharona, an Israeli-born artist, raised their son Jonathan and daughter Marab. He chose it as the site for the first galaxy garden, a topiary recreation of the Milky Way. The garden measures 100 feet across, with each foot corresponding to 1,000 light years. One light year is nearly 5.9 trillion miles. His two-dimensional Smithsonian mural can convey scale. He wanted to make something that let people feel the vastness without be becoming intimidated by it. Spiraling hedges are planted with gold dust croton, a leafy green plant dotted with yellow. Each yellow speckle represents 100,000 stars. Prepping the hedges are plants that signify different uh, astronomical phenomena. Hibiscus flowers are large nebulae, for instance, while white vinca flowers are small ones. At the garden's heart sits a fount fountain of black volcanic rock. A stand-in for Sagittarius A, the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. UCLA astrophysicist Andrea Ghez, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2020 for her role in the black hole's discovery, uh, visited the Galaxy Garden in 2009 while doing research at the Keck Observatory Telescopes on Mauna Kea. There's something very visceral about it. It brings it back to the human scale. And somehow, that affects a different part of your brain, or your understanding of things, she said. Even as a scientist, 
it was really somehow very profound to see it depicted in that way. Lomborg has licensed the Galaxy Guard name and layout, and there are now versions in Delaware and Pamplona, Spain. More on the way, he said. On the big island, volcanic rock pebbles crunched underfoot as Lomborg wandered down a curving hedge grove uh, marked Orion Arm to a leaf adorned with a plastic jewel that represents our solar system. Virtually everything we know about the universe can fit, metaphorically speaking, in that single dot on a leaf. There is so much more to explore. That's why looking for, uh, to the stars still fills him with optimism, even on a planet that feels increasingly imperiled. If we got a signal from some civilization that was clearly much older than ours, that had had high technology and survived, he said, that kind of gives you hope that it can be done. Lombard doesn't believe the golden records will ever be found. Space is simply too big, the voyagers too small. He has described them as darts thrown randomly in the dark uh, Madison Square Garden, their chances of striking a target, in effect, nil. But the way he sees it, that doesn't diminish their importance. This is where Lombard's journey has led him, to a place that he has always known instinctively, that is, late collaborator Sagan termed the cosmic perspective. The idea, it's the idea that we exist on the galactic level and on the atomic level at the same time, Lombard explained. That everything we do, every action we take, reverberates in both directions. Lombard invoked this idea when he spoke in February when he spoke to students at the San Jose campus of Avenues, an independent school where he is the first global artist in residence. We exist so briefly in time, and we're so small in space, and it's really easy to feel that we don't matter, he said. One of the messages that the cosmic perspective offers is that we do matter, especially because every scale is important. You stay in your lane, and you don't worry about the colliding galaxies. You just be significant on your own scale, he added. In a funny kind of way, these messages have simultaneously made me feel very small, but also made me feel very big. Microscopic cells together form a human. Minuscule atoms together form a universe. All of it counts. It always has. That was This Space Artist Has Long-Headed Stars in His Eyes by Corinne Pertil from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 27, 2023. All right, on to some entertainment news. This is from... The calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. The Roxy at 50. A rock legend hangs with legends. Lou Adler wanted to create a welcoming sunset strip nightclub. Music's greatest have always made themselves at home. By Steve Appleford. The nightclub is mostly empty as Lou Adler slides into a booth at the Roxy Theater, the iconic music venue he co-founded a half century ago on the Sunset Strip. The stage will be dark tonight, but Adler looks pleased just to be around here at age 89, his beard and white and full, ready to talk about the decades of musical history that have uh, unfolded at the club. There's been a lot of it, starting with Neil Young opening the Roxy with three nights of shows in September 1973 and a subsequent roll call of superstars and icons ever since, from Bruce Springsteen to Bob Marley, Linda Ronstadt to The Clash, Warren Zevon to Prince Slayer to Jay-Z. Beloved nightclubs come and go, but the Roxy has few peers in L.A. or elsewhere, both a hallowed venue where rock gods minted their legends and a still-thriving venue at the heart of the city's musical nightclub. 
At this point in my life, numbers always surprise me. My own age surprises me, Adler says with a smile, dressed in color-coordinated shades of orange and brown, including a pair of futuristic designer Crocs. I certainly have pride in the fact that we're sitting here talking about something that we opened 50 years ago. That history will be the focus of a series of Roxy 50 honors and events this fall, including a return engagement by Young to the 500 Capacity Nightclub on September 20. Beginning September 15, the Grammy Museum will host an exhibit of photographs documenting famous performers at the club and other artifacts, plus the small cabaret piano that was once upstairs at the Roxy Private Club. On the Rocks The West Hollywood Library will host an exhibit of photographs and Ether is being awarded a key to West Hollywood. When Guns N' Roses was starting out, that was the place we aspired to, said Slash, the band's lead guitarist, describing the rise of the L.A. club circuit that included gigs at the Whiskey, the Troubadour, and the now-defunct Starwood. Because Lou Adler was such a name, and he attracted a high-profile clientele, it established a certain kind of glamour that the other clubs didn't really have. It's held up to this day. At one time, opening the Roxy might have seemed a surprising side hustle for Adler. Before the Roxy, he was a co-founder of the groundbreaking Monterey International Pop Festival in 1979 and had enjoyed huge success as a talent manager, record label owner, and producer of hits by Carol King and the Mamas and the Papas. And yet the Roxy soon became a second home and a permanent part of his life. The idea was to create a 1940s nightclub for rock. He says that he says now uh, with excellent sound and slight line sightlines and respect for artists and fans. It was partly inspired by some rude treatment Adler had received at the nearby Troubadour, where King was making her first appearance as a solo artist. Adler was King's manager and producer, and she was signed to his label, Ode Records. You're not on the list, he was told twice by a Troubadour doorman and given the brush off. He relayed the incident to his friend Elmer Valentine, who founded the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1964. They were already partners, along with Mario Mag- Maglieri in the Rainbow Barn Grill, and decided the strip needed another rock club. Conveniently, next door to the Rainbow was a strip club called the Largo, called Largo, boasting the biggest burlesque floor show in the USA, which they took over and renamed the Roxy Theater to evoke a vintage nightclub. In addition to Valentine, uh, Adler gathered a dream team of music world impresarios as owner-investor advisors uh, in the Roxy to validate it before we ever opened it, he says. That group included San Francisco-based rock promoter Bill Graham, Elliot Roberts, who is man who, who managed Young and Joni Mitchell and co-founded Asylum Records, <clears throat> David Geffen, fast-rising manager and label executive owner, and manager record, record producer Pete Asher who worked with James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. Chuck Landis, uh, who ran the Largo, was also part of the group. It was a high-powered team, Asher says now. On September 30, 20, 1973, fans lined up along the strip as Young headlined the first of several shows with support from Graham Nash and the comedy duo Cheech and Chung. Young performed songs from almost exclusively from what would become his wounded and ragged Tonight's the Night album. Between songs, the rocker noted the room's previous entertainers. They say Candy Bar used to dance right here on this stage. That November, 
Ronstadt played a few nights at the Roxy and invited her friend Emmylou Harris to join her on stage. At the time, Harris was best known as the singing partner of Graham Parsons, who had just died of a drug overdose in Joshua Tree. Emilio had just lost Graham Parsons, and she was feeling pretty sad, said Ronstadt, uh, by, now by telephone, and I said, why don't you come out and we'll do some singing? So she came out, and she brought the cowgirl outfit, brought, uh, brought one for me. I was really thrilled to be able to sing with her. Among the songs they performed together was a cover of D.D. Warwick's You're No Good, soon to be a number one hit for Ronstadt. During those first months, the club hosted famed artists that included Jackson Brown, The Temptations, Frank Zappa, and Genesis. But its life as a nightclub was about to be interrupted. During a 1973 trip to London, Adler took in, took in a, sub, a sub, subversive hit stage musical called The Rocky Horror Picture Show. And within two days, signed a deal to bring it to the Roxy for its U.S. premiere. Fueled by 50-style rock and roll, and the era's exploding glam rock movement, the production was an uh, outre sci-fi horror satire swirling around a cross-dressing scientist in fishnets and sparkling heels called Dr. Frank N. Furter, played by a widely charismatic Tim Curry. The actor made his nightly entrance at the Roxy from the lobby to the stage, belting out the signature tune, Sweet Transvestite. Tim's entrance was phenomenal, recounts David Foster, the Grammy-winning composer and producer who early in his career was the show's pianist. The place was just went berserk because, of course, he was so much bigger than life. Photographs from opening night reveal a star-studded scene with John Lennon, Mick Jagger, and Cher in the crowd. Adler stood smiling in a satin jacket beside longtime friend Jack Nicholson, dressed like Jake uh, Gettys, G-I-T-T-E-S, from the soon-to-be-released Chinatown. After a year of Rocky Horror performances, the Roxy turned back to live rock and soul. Among the more electrifying concerts was a series of shows by Bob Marley, Bob Marley and the Wailers. This was one of the best shows I've ever seen, Ronstadt said. To see someone, something that authentic and that close to the root with that caliber of musician, we'd all be listening to the records, but there... There it was right in front of us, and there was nothing that could replace that. Upstairs from the Roxy, with its own entrance on the sunset, was on the rocks. It was that Vegas thing. What happened there stayed there, said Adler, whose famous friends became regulars, along with a rotating crowd of stars from music, Hollywood, and later sports. Asher remembers the club in those first years as a blur of hot women and drugs. A reliable combination, I suppose. For Cheech and Chong, the Roxy became a location for the filming of their first movie, Up in Smoke, directed by Adler. The scene involved the comedy duo engaged with the battle of the bands in front of a rowdy crowd. It was our home territory, Cheech Marin says now. Adler discovered the duo during a performance at the Troubadour, signed them to his label, and produced a series of popular albums that led to a movie career. He is he's a spotter of talent, Martin says of Adler. He can see something that's new and, more importantly, he knows how to promote it. In 1978, Todd Rundgren performed a week of concerts, two shows a night, at the Roxy. He was joined by an all-star cast of guests including Stevie Nicks, Holland Oates, and Rick Derringer. 
Rundgren recorded the shows and included several tracks on his live compilation, Back to the Bars. One night, he says, a fan gave him a purebred Ihasa Apso puppy. Another fan gifted him an exotic bird. He kept a dog. We couldn't figure out how to get the bird home, Rundgren said. Somebody else wound up with the bird. Punk rock arrived later that decade, representing at the, represented the club first by New York City acts like Patti Smith and television. If the Roxy didn't immediately embrace the homegrown punk rock scene, it soon became an essential venue for leading lights uh, from its first wave, hosting shows by the Screamers and the Germs, which were graduating from underground clubs like The Mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E. X hosted four nights celebrating the 1981 release of Wild Gift, the band's acclaimed sophomore album, decorating the stage with garlands of fake flowers. Singer-bassist John Doe compares the Roxy to other favorite venues across the country, including the Fillmore in San Francisco and Irving Plaza in New York, though the Roxy is smaller in size. It's big enough so that it doesn't feel like a small club, but it is, Doe says. In 1995, a new band called System of a Down played its first, very first show at the Roxy and quickly made the club an early home for its frantic metal folk eruptions. System became a platinum-selling band and ultimately moved on to bigger rooms, but singer Serge Tankian fondly recalls the Roxy and Adler. I've seen some club owners that are total jerks, act horribly with bands, and denigrate all their employees and the artists, he says. Not at the Roxy. As time rolled on, Adler began stepping back from running the club. His oldest son, Nick, started running things on-site as Adler pursued his growing obsession with attending Lakers games at the Forum, where he could usually be found courtside with Nicholson. I just changed my stage, Adler says. The Roxy remains a family business, and his other three sons have become involved. Booking is now handled by Golden Voice Productions, which Adler first encountered as a street-level company promoting punk, metal, and goth shows in Southern California. It is now the force behind the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival, a kind of latter-day manifestation of Adler's Monterey Pop Festival. Adler attends Coachella every year, and he's grown close with Golden Voice President Paul Tolette. Paul's part of the family, Adler says. Two decades later, Adler bought the land underneath the Roxy to protect the club's future. As other popular clubs in Southern California were absorbed by Live Nation in recent years and overtures to the Roxy were made by the company, Adler says he was determined to keep it in the family. Pretty soon, it becomes a numbers game, and it's run for somebody that doesn't come in contact with those people very every night, Adler says of some of the club and his clientele. You've got to have a feel. Elmer called it a face. There's got to be a face that they know. The club is still going strong hosting established acts and rising voices like Blanchel on August 2nd. Roxy has survived the COVID-19 pandemic and dramatic changes on the Strip. The bulldozers that swept away the House of Blues now threaten the Viper Room, but not the Roxy. Oh, I think we're here forever. It's always, it, it, it'll always be the Roxy. It may turn into a building that houses the Roxy and has apartments, Adler says. Whatever is going to happen to Sunset Boulevard will sort of go along with it, as long as there's always a rainbow, a whiskey, and a Roxy. That was The Roxy at 50, A Rock Legend Hangs with Legends by Steve Appleford. 
from the Los Angeles Times Calendar section, Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. All right, we have this final one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, uh, Tuesday, July 25th, 2023. It's a book review. Here we go again on Death of the Novel. What Joseph Epstein gets wrong about the art form in his latest work, He's Not Alone, by Jonathan Russell Clark. Joseph Epstein's The Novel Who Needs It is the latest in a rich tradition of hand-wringing about the state of what has become the preeminent artistic form of the last few centuries. For much of its history, the novel has had its honor defended by a who's who of literary stalwarts against cultural forces allegedly arrayed against it. Over the centuries, these have ranged from sentimental romance writers per Samuel Johnson to rationalists like Edgar Allan Poe, the masses who consume TV, or those who prefer Michael Crichton. The problem with these polemics, manifestos, and personal theses is that as much as their culprits have changed, they, <clears throat> they all pretty much make the same arguments, cite the same benefits, and even use the same language. Epstein, to his credit, acknowledges the persistence of anxiety over the novel's health. Signing an entry from 1856 in the Goncourt Brothers' collaborative diary, in which they lament that the fiction of Poe was sickly, analytic, and mon monomaniacal, Epstein then jump cuts to a 2014 essay by the novelist Will Self, in which he laments having to watch the art form to which he committed his life to die in front of him. The announcement of the death of the novel has over the years become something close to a regular event, he seems to lament, although a few sentences later he writes, Yep, just now, talk about, uh, the, talk about the death of the, of the novel has a credibility it has not quite had before. This reminded me of Tobias Funk in his uh, in Arrested Development telling his wife, Lindsay, that the open relationships he advises his therapist therapy patients to explore never work for them, but they still dilute themselves into thinking it might. But it might work for us. No one in nearly two centuries has been able to save the novel, but it might work for Epstein? Narrator, it doesn't. Just who are the enemies this time around? Epstein has made a modest name for himself as an amiable conservative curmudgeon, a sort of George Will Light, and his antagonists are many, the internet, political correctness, MFA workshops, commercial pressures, graphic novels, therapeutic culture, and the supposed rise of vulgarity. To prove that recent novels are diminished by these forces of decline, he quotes from reviews and not the novels, and as he not so subtly implies that reading them is beneath him, a strategy so unbecoming of a critic, I'm surprised it passed muster with his editor. Epstein is one of the most prolific literary critics in America, having published 17 collections of reviews, profiles, and essays. A preeminent expert on the novel, in other words. And yet, for all his critical acumen, and Epstein can be astute, an astute critic, he isn't really tre uh, treading new ground, and when he does, it's in the wrong direction. Many of his points were made nearly three decades ago by another curmudgeon of American letters, Jonathan Franzen, in an essay that struck such a chord with the literary world, it was referred to simply as the Harper's Essay. Franzen complains that the novel is no longer culturally central, 
that consumerism strangles an antithetical pro uh, product like a novel, that technology has outpaced the speed of fiction, that we solve all our problems with quick fixes, and that, on a more personal note, the world wasn't sufficiently celebrating his writing. Reading the Harper's essay now, it's hard not to side with James Wood when he remarked that the essay is incoherent, oscillating among global pessimism, personal turmoil, and tangents about things like how good his how how his good manners preclude him from telling his brother, who was a fan of Michael Crichton, that the work I'm doing is simply better than Crichton's. What a tough beat. Like Epstein, Franzen almost gets to the point before turning away from it. The current flourishing of novels by women and cultural minorities, he concedes, shows that the chauvinism of judging the vitality of American letters by the fortunes of the traditional social novel. Our literature may, be, may even be healthier because we've disabused ourselves of the need for a monoculture, which was, after all, an instrument for the perpetuation of a white male heterosexual elite. Maybe life is too multitudinous, for any one novel to capture its spirit, he muses, and perhaps ten novels from ten different cultural perspectives are required now. But just as Franzen arrives at this moment of clarity, he also argues that young writers feel imprisoned by their ethnic and gender identities and are discouraged from speaking across boundaries. He wants his, his fiction big and diverse and emblematic of an entire culture. None of this my interesting childhood nonsense that MFAs produce. Epstein drags Franzen's complaint, which is at least sincerely about narrative scope three decades forward and straight into the culture wars. A writer is no longer permitted, Epstein declares, though it happens all the time, to appropriate the material of those to whom presumably by rights it belongs. He goes on to defend the writer Lionel Shriver, who caused a stir when she rightly complained that the ideologies behind appropriation would put an end to all fiction. Epstein neglects to mention that Shriver made these uh, complaints while donning a sombrero, nor that Shriver spends a good chunk of that speech setting, settling scores with critics who called her novel The Mandibles racist because, according to her, it doesn't toe to a strict Democratic Party line. What Epstein Shriver and friends and Miss is that setting aside a few high-profile Goodreads pylons, uh, hundreds of novels arrive every year filled with characters whose race, gender, sexuality, or nationality differ from their author authors and no one bats an eye. The problems occur when writers don't take their responsibilities seriously. How can you argue that the novel's power is unsurpassed and then treat the consequences of, of that power as meaningless? Whereas for Epstein, the stakes of the novel's livelihood are primarily abstract. For those cultural minorities he mentions, the turmoil takes an altogether more menacing shape. The theorist Bell Hooks notes uh, in, the, in an essay on Toni Morrison that few black women uh, writers are considered serious. The pioneering gay novelist Gore Vidal recalls how the publication of his novel, The City and the Pillar, in 1948, was met with shock and disbelief. Salman Rushdie very nearly died because his novel, The Satanic Verses, was deemed heretical. These concerns are deeper 
and more vital to confront than any of the issues raised by Franzen or Epstein because they have actual stakes. Rushdie, uh, uh, Rushdie Books et al. work to improve the novel. Epstein and his conferees want the world to change around it. Maybe the biggest reason that Epstein and Franzen and the uh, Goncourts and Samuel Johnson before them have been so ineffective at defending the novel is that they've been ineffective in defining it. And not for lack of trying. To Epstein, it's a standard bearer of the right and proper. To Franzen, kaleidoscope rebuke of pop simplification to the Goncourts, uh, some regard to some rearguard defense against the technical age, to Johnson, a rejection of sentimentality. For Epstein, if you lose the novel, we are forced to fall back on the rather sterile concepts and ideas that current-day philosophy and social sciences provide. But what deeper truths does the novel offer to transcend false notions? A great novelist methodically dismantles them, as Epstein points out, but that means the responsibility for the novel's vitality lies not in readers nor in critics, especially those who don't read the books, but in writers. They must work vigilantly to maintain the novel's health, in part by accurately reflecting life as it is, not as they wish it to be. In 1884, Henry James wrote that the only condition he could think of for the writing of a novel is that it be sincere. The novel offers its creator a freedom that is a splendid privilege, James continues, and the first lesson of the young novelist is to learn to be worthy of it. That was Here We Go Again on Death of the Novel by Jonathan Russell Clark from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 25, 2023. Clark is the author of An Oasis of Horror in a Desert of Boredom and the forthcoming Skateboard. The name of the novel is The Novel Who Needs It by Joseph Epstein from Encounter Publishing, 152 pages, cost $26. All right, and here is something from comicbook.com. This is called WWE. Paul Heyman takes a shot at Cody Rhodes over his recent interview comments. Paul Heyman took exception to Cody Rhodes crowning Bobby Heenan as the greatest WWE manager by Connor, Connor Casey for July 26, 2023. Cody Rhodes has conducted a number of interviews over the past week ahead of the premiere of his documentary, American Nightmare, Becoming Cody Rhodes many of which centered around his WrestleMania 39 match with Roman Reigns for the undisputed WWE Universal Championship. Paul Heyman, Roman Reigns' advocate and a key role player in Rhodes' loss in Los Angeles, took exception to some of Cody's comments that aired his grievances on Twitter. The quote that caught Heyman's attention was when Sports Illustrated's Jimmy Trena asked Rhodes who is the best manager in pro wrestling history. Rhodes said, Bobby the Brain Heenan, rather than Paul Heyman. I like how at Sinos, at Jimmy Trena, continues his petulant pursuit of, uh, to bait me. Sigh, and I respect the opinion of at Cody Rhodes, the fourth greatest performer in his family's magnificent history, only behind Dusty, Dustin, and the Brandy, and, and at the Brandy Rhodes. The wise man cometh, acknowledge your tribal chief, Heyman wrote. Elsewhere in the same interview, Rose discussed the feeling of being stuck after his loss to Reigns. The American Nightmare is currently gearing up for his third match with Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam. I feel you have moments in your career when you get stuck in them, 
whether they're so good or whether they're so low that you get stuck in these moments, Rhodes said. It's not unlike if you have a traumatic experience in your personal life. For me, I felt, and I still do, three months removed, very stuck. And that there was a very long period of time when, where I was sitting in the ring. I knew I was sitting in the ring and I knew I had lost. I'm watching people not leave. They're looking at me. They're looking at me and they're either frustrated, they're sad for me, they're mad at me. But you usually see at the end of the night some people heading off for the aisles. They're going to beat traffic, something. We were just stuck. And I knew we were filming me. And the internal monologue I had when I saw my family at ringside, then I saw some of the most diehard fans fully decked out in every piece of merch from me they could have possibly bought. The internal monologue was really just telling me to get my, myself to get up. And then I wanted to make a point that I was not going to walk what we call loser lane. I'm going to walk all the way back up this 70-yard ramp, and I want to feel every bit of this loss. And then my world filled up right the next day. I jumped into the thing with Brock Lesnar, he said, added. He later added, so again, I feel like I'm stuck. I'm stuck there. I'd love Summer Slam to be the moment that's like, hey, moving forward. Hopefully defeating Brock Lesnar, moving forward. And without saying anything, without doing the old this little number around the waist. Let them know. The thing I came back for, we're still on the path. We're still on the path, and I want to be uh, confident about it in the best of ways because you rode with me all the way to WrestleMania in Los Angeles, and hopefully they can ride with me to whatever it is and wherever we go next. And that was Paul, uh, WWE Paul Heyman takes a shot at Cody Rhodes over his recent interview comments by Connor Casey from comicbook.com. July 26, 2023. Now we move on to JewishJournal.com. And uh, this one is called San Diego Rabbi Assaulted. The assault took place at a 7-Eleven close to the Chabad House at San Diego State University around 10 a.m. Uh, Aaron, by Aaron Bandler, July 28, 2023. An Orthodox Jewish rabbi was assaulted in San Diego on Monday in what is being invested as a hate crime. The attack took place at a 7-Eleven close to the Chabad House at San Diego State University around 10 a.m. The San Diego Jewish world identified the victim as being Rabbi Aaron Shapiro, 65, a field representative for the Orthodox Union. Shapiro told the San Diego Jewish world that the alleged assailant, who he described as a white male with curly brown hair in his 30s around 5'8 or 5'9, followed him into the 7-Eleven and asked Shapiro if he's Jewish. After Shapiro replied in the affirmative, the man allegedly began saying with a raised vo voice, Jews all deserve to die. Israel is killing people. Israel doesn't deserve to exist. Shapiro countered, Israel is, our, is ours because God gave it to us and told the man to read the Bible. The uh, rabbi proceeded to purchase two cans of Coke Zero on his way out, and on his way out, the man grabbed one of my tzitzits and pulled, pulling, pulled it off the garment, threw it on the floor, said something vile which I don't remember, and he ran out the door, Shapiro alleged. He also told the San Diego Jewish world that the incident is symptomatic of how our political leaders are not really friendly to Israel, and we have enough simmering anti-Israel rhetoric and anti-Jewish rhetoric that is permeating America. So people pick up on it and want their five seconds of fame. Anti-Defamation League San Diego and Jewish Federation of San Diego said in a joint statement on Tuesday, Yesterday's alleged assault on a San Diego rabbi that was accompanied 
by anti-Semitic slurs is reprehensible and another indicator of the hatred that exists toward the Jewish community. We are grateful that the San Diego police are investigating this incident as a hate crime and call on local leaders to condemn this act of hate. ABC 10 News reported that on Wednesday, anti-Semitic flyers were found on several cars in the Allied Gardens area of San Diego. Stop Anti-Semitism Executive Director Leora Rez told ABC 10 News, We see that this being just another example of the hate speech we see online manifesting into the hate that we see in the physical realm, where it be via these leaflets or violence against this rabbi. That was San Diego Rabbi Assaulted by Aaron Bandler, July 28, 2023. Go now to some articles from the culture section of JewishJournal.com. And uh, with this one, Jewish groups react to passage of reasonableness judicial reform bill. Various Jewish groups express concern that the bill passed without a broad consensus in the country. By Aaron Bandler, July 25, 2023. Multiple Jewish American Jewish groups criticized the Israeli government's passage of a judicial reform that limits the Supreme Court's ability to strike down government decisions based on the reasonableness standard. The bill passed in the Knesset 64-0 with the opposition boycotting the vote altogether. Protests have been raging across Israel over the bill and the ruling coalition's broader push for judicial reform. Some military reservists uh, even said that after the July 24 bill passed that they would no longer voluntarily serve in the military to protest the bill. Various Jewish groups expressed concern that the bill passed without a broad consensus in the country. We are deeply disappointed that the Israeli government passed the controversial reasonableness bill failing to heed the call of President Herzog and others to reach a compromise rooted in a broad societal consensus, the Anti-Defamation League said in a statement. As we have previously said, this initiative and other judicial overhaul proposals could weaken Israeli democracy and harm Israel's uh, founding principles as laid out in the Declaration of Independence. The failure to reach a compromise has led to unprecedented divisions within Israeli society, threatening both the country's social cohesion, economic well-being, and, according to experts, its security preparedness. They later added, We continue to believe that in this historic moment, all Israeli political leaders should demonstrate courage and willingness to compromise and make concessions. There is no legislation that is more important than well-being of the Israeli society. We strongly urge the Israeli government to refrain from moving additional judicial overhaul bills forward and focus instead on working together with Israeli civil leadership to build consensus and cohesion aimed at healing the wounds within Israeli society. The American Jewish Committee expressed their profound disappointment in a similar statement. The new law was pushed through unilaterally by the governing coalition amid deepening divisions in Israeli society as evidenced by the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who have taken to the streets, the AJC said. Of particular concern to AJC, the continued effort to press forward on judicial reform rather than seeking compromise has sown discord within the Israeli defense forces at a time of elevated threats to the Jewish homeland and has strained the vital relationship between Israel and diaspora Jewry. While many Israelis agree that some reform of Israel's judicial system is warranted, AJC has consistently maintained that reform to the institution's core to Israeli democracy 
should only be adopted on the basis of the broadest possible consensus. That's why we have been strongly supportive of President Herzog's efforts to find compromise. President Herzog's successful visit to the United States last week reminded us that a thoughtful and pragmatic approach can gain support across political lines. Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish American Organizations Chair Herod P. Schleifer and CEO William Daroff said in a statement, We must remember the dangers that discord and division can pose to the Jewish people. We call on Israel's leaders to seek compromise and unity. Responsible political actors must ease tensions that have run dangerously high. The Conference of Presidents will always advocate in support of the bilateral relationship between the United States and Israel, which is crucial to the security and well-being of both nations. Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. Both countries benefit immeasurably from this strategic partnership and abiding friendship and will continue to do so because of our fundamental bonds and common interests. The European Leadership Network tweeted, ELNET being apolitical and nonpartisan, is deeply concerned about the ramifications of this vote and has called upon the government to reach a broad national consensus on constitutional changes. Elnet believes both mutual interests and common democratic values are the basis for relations between Israel and Europe. Elnet will carefully monitor developments moving forward. Other Jewish groups went a step further, suggesting that the bill's passage threatens to destroy Israel's democracy altogether. With a reasonableness standard repealed with a respect to a critical range of government decisions, the Supreme Court has lost a major piece of its ability to act as a balance on the actions of the executive, J Street said in a statement. This extreme right government will have an increasingly unrestricted hand to carry out major appointments, dismissals, and policies without fear that they could be halted and overturned by the courts. Their agenda will almost certainly include deeply harmful new acts of annexation and expropriation in the West Bank, where they continue to pursue a one-state nightmare of permanent occupation and exclusive, exclusive sovereignty between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. It will continue to chip away at the rights of women, LGBTQ plus people, Palestinians, both Israeli and those in the occupied territory, non-Orthodox Jews, and many others. The Jewish Democratic Council of America denounced the bill's passage as being anti-democratic. We are deeply concerned by the ongoing attempts to erode Israel's democracy with measures like this one, which unequivocally weakens Israel's judiciary, democracy, and systems of checks and balances, JDCA CEO Haley Soifer said. As President Herzog has urged and President Biden has advised, the focus of the Israeli government should be on uniting around a consensus for judicial reform, not divisive and undemocratic measures like this one. We stand with the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who have demonstrated in support of Israel's democracy and in opposition to harmful judicial overhaul proposals, including this legislation. The Rabbinical Assembly and United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism similarly said in a statement, the governing coalition's choice to unilaterally pass this legislation represents a clear and present danger to the country's independent judiciary, which may still come under further assault. Democracy requires independent legislative, judicial, and executive branches. With no written constitution nor upper house in the legislature, the independence of Israel's judiciary is indispensable. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition has serious work, uh, created serious fractures in Israel 
and the wider Jewish world. In the face of their legislative aggression, we are heartened by the broad uh, citizen coalition of Israelis who are resolved to protect the Jewish and democratic nature of the state. We urge the government to refrain from introducing further judicial legislation and to participate in negotiations under the auspices of President Isaac Herzog. By contrast, Zionist Organization of America National President Morton A. Klein expressed staunch support for the bill. There were hundreds of thousands of Israelis in Tel Aviv rallying in support of this judicial reform, yet the media in Israel and America neglected to report this, Klein said in a statement. The reform is a victory for democracy, the rule of law, a democratic balance of powers, and is curbing judicial tyranny in Israel. The reasonableness standard was abusive, violated democratically passed bills, was used to oust a democratically elected minister, and subjective. What's unreasonable to one person is reasonable to another. There was no criteria for judging reasonableness. It was simply the judge's political or personal opinion and worldview. And when you have an Israeli Supreme Court with an overwhelming left-wing majority with no diversity, you get rulings not reflecting the law of the people. The law or the people. I'm sure if the court had an overwhelming right-wing majority, the people in the streets opposing judicial reform would be supporting it. He added that it would be an anti-democratic travesty to allow Israel's democratic process to be thwarted by the left-wing mobs who obstructed vital roads and Israel's airports sometimes acting, acted violently, and even tried to block Knesset members from entering the Knesset to vote today. Democratic Majority for Israel CEO Mark Melman and board co-chairs Anne Lewis and Todd Richmond said in a statement, While we believe it was a serious mistake for this government to ignore the pleading of the majority of its citizens, as well as its president, and pass this bill without significant compromise, it was done democratically. As in any democracy, including the United States, governments are empowered to make decisions however disappointing or unwise we may believe them to be. It should also be noted, despite some misleading headlines in the media, the law approved today in the Knesset does not prevent the Israeli Supreme Court from overturning government decisions, though it does remove one important criterion for doing so. They added that it is not too late for a compromise on it and other elements that uh, the proposed judicial overhaul. We urge all parties to return immediately to negotiations under the auspices of President Herzog to agree on a widely supported set of laws that guarantee the democratic character of the Jewish state. We remain inspired by the hundreds of thousands of patriotic Israeli protesters continuing to fight to protect their democracy. And we know that through these difficult times, the U.S.-Israel relationship remains steadfast. And that was... Jewish Groups React to Passage of Reasonableness Judicial Reform Bill by Aaron Bandler, July 25th, 2023. This next one is called Rally Held for Jewish Families Suing State Government for Special Needs Funding Before First Hearing. Around 200 people attended the rally, which was held at the Gloria Molina Grand Park Lawn across from City Hall and featured various speakers decrying the actions of the California State Government by Aaron Bandler. July 25th, 2023. A rally was held on the morning of July 21 before the first hearing on the Orthodox Jewish Families and Jewish Day Schools lawsuit against the California state government alleging that the state government is unconstitutionally barring federal funding for special needs services from Jewish day schools. Under the Federal Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, 
public schools are required to provide funding for special needs students. But some public schools don't have the infrastructure for that, in which case they make a referral to private schools that do. The families of special needs students then receive federal funding to attend those private schools. But the California state government has barred such funding from going to religious private schools, the issue at the heart of the current lawsuit, Laughman v. California Department of Education. The plaintiffs are Haya and Yoni Laughman, Fedora, Nick, and Morris Taxon, and Sarah and Ariel Peretz, all of whom are parents of special needs children, and Los Angeles Jewish Day Schools Shalhevet Yavne Hebrew Academy. Around 200 people attended the rally, which was held at the Gloria Molina Grand Park Lawn across from City Hall and featured various speakers decrying the actions of the California state government. Teach Coalition founder Mari Litwack kicked off the rally by highlighting the unimaginable situation of the parents who are filing the lawsuit. The desire is a simple one, to send their children with special needs to a school, yeshiva, that will give them the tools necessary to flourish but also with an education set in a Jewish environment, Litwack said. But despite that simple need, the state of California has refused them help because the state of California and their elected officials have decided that these children and thousands like them are not eligible for special education funding simply because their parents value a religious education. Litwack lambasted the California policy as being outrageous and unfair. The courts and places like the Supreme Court have already declared that religious schools and their parents cannot be discriminated in this manner, Litwack said. It's unconstitutional. What California is doing is, uh, stands against this. All children with disabilities, regardless of their religious beliefs, should have the same opportunity to receive a quality education that meets their unique needs. And a parent who uh, should never, never have to compromise on how or where their child's educated. So today, here, Altogether, we're going to change that. The first parent in the lawsuit to speak was Hyatt Lothman, a mother of two. Like every parent, I want to raise my children with all the care and support that they need to thrive, Lothman said. Unfortunately, California is making it harder for me to provide that to my children with disabilities simply because of our faith. Politicians in this state are using religion as an excuse to deny my son and countless other children a safe and supported learning environment that meets all their needs. No parent should have to choose between raising their child in faith and providing their child with the tools that they need to reach their full potential. She prayed for the court to allow my son to receive the supportive, religious, and educational environment that he needs to flourish. The other parent in the lawsuit to speak was Fedora Nick. Her two oldest sons were able to receive a Jewish education, but her youngest was not due to being diagnosed with autism. In California, our elected representatives refuse to help children with disabilities attend schools that reflect their religious backgrounds, she said, because the state bars religious schools from its program providing support services to children with disabilities, my husband and I have been unable to send our son to a school where he can reach his full potential educational and, spirit, uh, and spiritual. One of Nick's sons, Asher Taxon, proceeded to tell attendees he is saddened that his younger brother was autism has been denied the same education that Taxon received at Jewish schools. Kids like him have to overcome obstacles and challenges to have their unique needs met in the classroom, and our state politicians are making that even harder, Taxon said. Instead of putting more barriers in front of these kids with disabilities, California should do, be doing everything it can 
to ensure that safe, supportive, and compassionate learning environments are available to all. Miriam Marks, who is a parent of a special needs child but is not one of the plaintiffs, told rally attendees, when you are the parent of a special needs child, every day is a battle, a fight for something your child needs. Every day brings something new, something you could not have anticipated or planned for. She explained that her son, Yonatan, has received new opportunities thanks to various therapies and treatments. Today, I stand in front of you with a deep understanding of the importance of what the right special needs support can do for a child, Mark said. And even more so, what having that support and access wherever a parent feels is best for the child, especially in their school of choice, could mean. An opportunity we wish we could have had with Yonatan. Other speakers were from Jewish day schools. Rabbi Yol Burstein, principal of Beis Yaakov, Los Angeles, recounted how Martin Luther King Jr. decided to try the impossible and accomplish the incredible. He fought discrimination. He fought segregation. People didn't believe he would be able to accomplish what he accomplished, Bert Burstein said. But he wouldn't relent and he succeeded. We're here today. We here today are doing the exact same thing. We are fighting discrimination. We taxpayers who pay our taxes, all we're asking for is give us back our money. We pay our taxes and we deserve to get the services that we pay for. Burstein proceeded to give a message to state politicians. We don't want to take you to court. We don't want to fight you in court. We should be on the same side, he said. We're all fighting for these children who can't stand up for themselves. Open your hearts and open your mind and understand. We need you and you can do it, Burstein later, at, uh, later added. You believe in people's right to choose. Where is our right to choose if we can't get what's rightfully ours? Yavna Academy Dean Rabbi Shlomo Einhorn also spoke at the rally, expressing Yavna, Yavin's desire to provide every child that comes to our school an orthodox education that allows and enables them to flourish. According to California, however, we should not be able to help students with disabilities. He lamented that shining a lot on the issue wasn't enough for the state government to change course. For the congresspeople in Sacramento, it's politicians before children, Einhorn said. I hope and I pray that the court will right this injustice and allow all students to flourish at Yavne and other private religious institutions across the state. After the rally concluded, some headed over to the courthouse for the case oral arguments, with the state arguing to dismiss the case and the plaintiffs arguing for a preliminary injunction. Nick Reeves, one of the attorneys from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty that is representing the plaintiffs, told the journal that he thought the hearing went well. The court was asking both sides some challenging questions, but I think we explained to her that this was a really important issue. I think one way we did that was by having the whole community show up. Reeves pointed to the rally, as well as the fact that 40 or 50 families showed up in the courtroom for support for the plaintiffs. He expects it could take several weeks, if not months, for the court to render a decision. We're looking forward to the next steps in the case, Reeves said. This is not going to be a single hearing. There's going to be multiple opportunities to explain to the court why these Orthodox Jewish families and schools have the same rights as other families who choose to send their kids to a secular school. The Lothman parents said in a statement to the journal following the hearing, We want to educate our son in a safe, supportive learning environment that meets his unique needs and upholds our shared religious beliefs. Unfortunately, California is forcing our family to choose between raising our son in our faith tradition and providing him with the help he needs to reach his full potential. 
Teach Coalition Foundation uh, found, Teach Coalition founder Mari Litwack also said in a statement to the journal regarding the hearing, "All children with disabilities, regardless of their religious beliefs, should have the same opportunity to receive a quality education that meets their unique needs, and a parent should never have to compromise on how uh, or where to, their child is educated." We're looking forward to continuing engagement with community, Reed said. The community support is really what allows us to do this litigation. This article has been updated. That was rally held for Jewish families suing state government for special needs funding before first hearing by Aaron Bandler, July 25th, 2023. All right, and here's this other one. On the eighth anniversary of his passing, <clears throat> remembering the pilot who saved Tel Aviv, Captain Lou Leonard was one of the non-Israeli Mahalniks who risked their lives by quietly volunteering to start the Israeli Air Force by Brian Fishback, July 26, 2023. This month marks the eight years since the passing of one of the most important airmen in the history of Israel and the United States Marine Corps, Captain Lou Leonard. He was literally the first fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force and his first mission in defense of Israel was a crucial victory in Israel's early history. When he passed away in Ra'anana on July 20th, 19, uh, 2015 at 94, Lennart's funeral at Kifar Nachman Cemetery was attended by many high-ranking officers of the Israeli Air Force and U.S. Marine Corps. During the celebration surrounding Israel's 75th anniversary in May, there was a commemoration ceremony to honor Lennart hosted by the Office of the Israel Consulate General in Los Angeles. It was one of many events surrounding the, uh, the Israel's 75th anniversary. So on the 8th anniversary of his passing, the journal recognizes Leonard's story from Israel's early history that is deserving of detailed recognition. The event commemorating Leonard took place on a dreary morning on May 22nd at the Proud Bird Food Bazaar and Events Center, a museum and restaurant about three football fields south of Los Angeles International Airport. Visitors from the parking lot are greeted by a monument to the Tuskegee Airmen, featuring one of their red tail planes. And right next to it is a Navy Blue Corsair FG-1D plane in commemoration of Captain Lennart. Dr. Hillel Newman, the Consul General of Israel in Los Angeles, opened the ceremony. Lou Lennart is an icon and a hero, Newman said. In Israel, Lou bonded his life with Israel. Lou was a true value-oriented person who was willing to sacrifice his life for Israel, understanding the perilous situation of the Israel hanging on a thread. Dr. Newman also mentioned the Nancy Spielberg-produced documentary Above and Beyond, which covered the efforts by the pilots who defended Israel in its first air battles as a new state. Leonard was born in Hungary on April 24, 1921. A decade later, Leonard and his family immigrated to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, about 100 miles north of Philadelphia. There he experienced anti-Semitism from the children of Polish miners. Even after high school, it didn't end. In a written statement read at the commemoration event, Leonard's widow, Rachel Nur, shared a story from Leonard's enlistment experience. Lou had a humiliating experience at the Marines' recruiting base, Nur wrote, when the officer there looked at his enlistment papers, recognizing that the person standing in front of him was Jewish, he looked up at Leonard and asked, Can you make it? Lou didn't hesitate for a moment and answered, If you can make it, I can make it. His family that remained in Europe did not survive the Holocaust. These experiences, experiences strengthened his 
uh, courage and motivated him to make good efforts for a different future, a good future for an enlightened world, as well as for the Jews. Liu was grateful for the, to the United States of America for offering his family a refuge and defense from anti-Semitic persecution, as well as for granting him human rights and a chance to live as a free man. He was enormously proud to serve in the United States Marine Corps, which gave him a chance to integrate into the United States and to fight the forces of darkness. At the time, the United States military was building thousands of aircrafts, but there were not enough pilots to fly them. After the service, academy, and college graduates were selected for pilot training, there was still a desperate need for more. So anyone who could pass the physical and mental tests got selected to take classes at colleges and universities to begin pilot training. Leonard, to his amazement, was selected. Whenever he recounted his early military career to audiences, Leonard would often remark about how, as a Hungarian Jew, he couldn't have served in the Hungarian army, but the United States Marine Corps welcomed him. Leonard would do his training at Marine Corps Air Station El, El Toro in Orange County. It was a precarious assignment, with an estimated one Navy or Marine Corps pilot dying every day. Leonard almost suffered the same fate. During his training, Leonard survived a low-altitude mid-air collision and miraculously only broke both of his legs. Although the doctor said he would never fly again, within a year, Leonard was piloting missions over Japan, including the Battle of Okinawa. Also speaking in honor of Leonard at the event was Israeli Air Force Brigadier General Asaf Vardi, Israeli Deputy Defense Attaché and Air Force Attaché to the United States. Vardi spoke of Leonard's heroics in the post-World War uh, II years, at a time when Israel was just gaining statehood. When Israel declared its independence on May 14, 1948, the single combat squadron of the Israeli Air Force consisted of only four Czech versions of the German Messerschmitt aircraft, Vardy said. On May 29, 1948, only two weeks after the establishment of Israel, a large Egyptian military advanced to within 60 miles of Tel Aviv. Israel decided to gamble its entire combat air force in an attack on the advancing Egyptian convoys. At 7.45 a.m. exactly, the Messerschmitt planes of Squadron 101 took off for its first operational mission. The pilots attacked the Egyptian forces and stopped them at the Ashdod Bridge. The stunned Egyptian troops, who had been assured that the Israelis had no aircraft, stopped their advances and battled against the heroic Israeli ground forces. They eventually retreated, and it was then that the youngest state of Israel declared to its enemies, Enough! You won't be going further than this point. As the most experienced pilot in the squadron, Leonard led the mission backed by Mahdi Alon, future Israeli President uh, Ezra Weizmann, and Eddie Cohen. Cohen died during the attack. That attack led to newspapers report, reports hailing Leonard as the man who saved Tel Aviv. This was the first time that fighter airplanes flown by Jewish pilots took off from the ground of the new young state of Israel. Leonard would later describe the battle to the Israeli Air Force Journal as the most important event in his life and that he survived World War II so he could lead this mission. While working as a commercial pilot for El Al in 1951, Leonard was summoned to serve Israel in a covert mission for the Mossad. For six months, Leonard flew passenger planes transporting persecuted Iraqi Jews to Israel under false identities, all while repeatedly risking his own life to fulfill the mission. 
Leonard and the 4,500 other volunteers from 58 different countries came to be known as the Mahalniks. Mahal being short for Mitnadvi Hutz meaning volunteers from outside the land. These non-Israeli volunteers were crucial to Israel's victory over the six invading Arab armies in the 1948 War of Independence. As a young pilot in the Israeli Air Force, I was inspired by legendary figures like Lou Leonard, Vardy said. For me, it was a great honor years later to command Squadron 101 myself, the very same squadron in which Lou served so heroically. Every morning when I entered my office, I would look at Lou's flight jacket, which he personally donated to the unit on its 60th anniversary. Seeing his jacket hanging there, I would often think that even though we were not flying Mr. Schmitz anymore, the spirit we inherited from him still drives us forward. The final speaker was four-star General Robert Magnus, United States Marine Corps, retired. Not only is General Magnus the highest-ranking Jewish U.S. Marine of all time, he was also Leonard's best man at his wedding to Rachel Nur. After sharing some personal stories of his friendship and Marine Corps brotherhood with Leonard, Magnus spoke in detail about just how daring and risky it was for Leonard and his fellow Machnaliks to literally assemble an Israeli Air Force during the end of the British Mandate. In 1947, Lou volunteered to join the Haganah, the Jewish Defense Organization, after a call from a fellow named Al Schwimmer, General Magnus told the crowd. Al was a California engineer who had done very well during the war, but he also was one of the people that were breaking the British blockade by helping orchestrate the illegal smuggling of not only aircrafts and parts, but people to break the British blockade in Palestine and to be able to create an air arm. Aircrafts were smuggled from wartime Europe, the Av Avia S-199, which is a Czech knockoff version of the Messerschmitt uh, that the Nazis had made, as well as aircrafts that came from the United States. They were also evading the blockade in various ways. They could not fly the Messerschmitts back to Palestine for one pretty simple reason. It couldn't carry enough fuel. You'd have to stop too many times along the way, each time running the risk of being captured by the British who had spies all over the place because they were well aware of what the Jewish organizations were trying to do. The key to these aircraft was as much the ground crews as it was the aircraft. Somebody had to know how to fix them, and in the case of these four Messerschmitts, they were put in crates in Czechoslovakia, and they were smuggled in transport aircraft into Palestine. And then you had to have somebody on the ground that knew how to put them together. Now this is a not now this is a not in the days when you have digital textbooks where it can tell you the parts. So these mechanics, many of whom were not Sabras, they were not born in Israel. They were trained in World War II, but they were not trained on Messerschmitts. But they figured out how to put these aircrafts together after they were smuggled into Palestine. As General Magnus continued speaking, a special sight appeared outside a window overlooking LAX. An LL plane taxiing for takeoff could be seen slowly rolling to its takeoff position. Of course, it was a coincidence, but the moment felt as if the spirit of Leonard was looking on and saluting General Magnus as he spoke his praises. Lou was a man who, in many ways, reminded me of Marquise Lafayette, a hero of two countries, General Magnus said. Why would we offer his life in order to protect values and people in a land that was not his? Well, it's about principles. It's about faith. And it's more than just religion. It's about doing the right thing. 
and that was on the 8th anniversary of his passing, Remembering the Pilot Who Saved Tel Aviv, by Brian Fishback, July 26, 2023. And that is from jewishjournal.com. So why don't we just check out the marketplace real quick here. And as usual, to reserve your market space ad, call 213-368-1661. And space reservations and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursdays. And uh, you can follow the Jewish Journal. Advertise your product or service here in the Jewish Journal Marketplace. And folks, that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything happening with us folks right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.